Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. That's the question we're going to ask tonight, which is, what are you in for? And we're going to read these two parables in which Jesus addresses that question, what is kind of asked of us, what will it cost, actually, Jesus says this several times in the ministry, to know Jesus, to have a relationship with God. And this is what he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a hidden field, and when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold everything that he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. This is Jesus teaching us about the costs of the joy of the gospel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words. They are a challenge to us. They are words that sound sweet, and yet they are very scary because they talk about selling everything we have uh, in order to have you. And so as we consider that on a Tuesday night when we're in the middle of really busy lives with a lot of other worries and concerns and hopes, Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts. We would find the capacity to believe in you and to follow you and to find that there's life in you and nowhere else. In your name we pray. Amen. Um. So I have, most of you all know, I have four little girls. I have two 11-year-olds and two 12-year-olds. If you don't know that, you're just going to be reeling from that, for the, that statement for the next three minutes. But, um, you know, we're in the middle of, uh, of just like every time you go to the toy store, it's, Dad, can I have this? Dad, can I have this? Dad, can I have this? We all remember that stage as a child, right? We all went through it. And uh, what's fun, and I think we all remember this too, is... The reason we want and ask for so many things in the toy store is because it cost us nothing to want those things, and hopefully it will cost us nothing for our parents to buy those things. But then, when you give a kid a gift certificate or $20 cash and say, go buy whatever you want, does everybody remember having this experience of like, now you have this capital, and you walk into the toy store, and all of a sudden, nothing is good enough. Right, and it takes forever to find anything you want. It's really hard to figure it out because now it's your money, and you have to put your money where your mouth is, and it's hard to figure out how to spend it. Um, fear of missing out, FOMO, as the millennials call it, um, is actually the exact same principle applied to life. What I mean by that is in our fantasies, everybody's fantasies, uh, we have time for acing CS and getting a six-pack and going to all the parties and cultivating meaningful spiritual and philosophical life, mastering some music, working on a startup, being on a club sports team, having deep friendships. In our fantasy life and so on and so forth, we have the time for all of that. In real life, you have a very limited amount of time and focus And FOMO is exactly the same thing that a kid feels with the gift card in the toy store, but instead it's applied to life and your time and your focus. There's so many things that could make me happy, and I have a limited amount of time, and I only get one shot, 
what if I spend it on the wrong things? And in these parables, you have two different characters and what it looks like when they find the thing worth it all. And their money in the parable is a metaphor for life, to spend our lives on something, to give our lives to or for something. And the first thing that you kinda, we all have to come to the grips with, uh, do you know that you are, Christian or not, religious or not, giving your life for something? You have these things, these resources, this capital called time and focus. Uh, the way the, word, the, the biblical word for focus would just be heart. Heart doesn't mean seed of emotions in the Bible. It means all of your energies and hopes. You have these things called time and focus, and you are investing them towards some treasured hope. Whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you identify as religious. You are investing them. Here's the next question. Have you thought about what you're giving your life for. The first challenge is this. Are you willing to take an audit of your true hopes? Because you do have them, and you are aiming for them, and they are, at present, in this very moment, costing you. Do you know it? That's the first question. Last year, in a conversation with a student, they stepped back in the middle of a conversation and realized he didn't know why getting a high-profile job had become important to him. He just gets swept up in the stream here and recognized that he had given a ton of focus and time and energy and anxiety to sacrificing his life to that goal and had done no real deep spiritual or personal analysis of whether or not it was worth sacrificing for that goal. To, whether or not it was worth to expend all of his resources and his capital for that goal, for that focus, for that hope. Every minute of every day, including these minutes now, you're investing your most precious resource, which is your time and your focus, toward a hope. You can't not be investing it. It is taken from you immediately if you don't invest it. Last minute that we just spent, it's gone forever. You don't have it back. You burned it. I hope it was worthwhile. You're like, why does Britain spend so many of my minutes talking about CrossFit? I'm going to have to answer for Jesus about that. I'm sorry. But... You don't get it back. You can't not invest it. And you can't save it. The question is not whether or not you're paying out your life to get something. The question is, have you found the thing worthy of paying out your life for? It's one thing, right, to spend $20 at the toy store and be disappointed and get buyer's remorse. It's another thing to spend your life on something and find out it wasn't worth it. And Jesus is saying something in these parables about the kingdom of heaven, and that's a phrase used in the New Testament to depict life with Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, being friends with his people, following him, living with him, and obeying him. And he's saying, that is the thing you've always been looking for, and it might be right in front of you. There are two images here. There's two different characters, right? The first, well, the second one is a a pearl merchant who's in search of fine pearls. He's looking. He's shopping. Someone looking everywhere. We are life shoppers. We are shopping. That's where FOMO comes from. We're looking everywhere. When we create pros and cons, why I should do this and not do that. 
right? When we think about where to go to college, your major, your job, your interest, your friends, your romantic interest, your spring break plans, all of those searches have been about the, the anxiety we experience about all of those decisions is due to the fact that everybody here implicitly understands opportunity costs. If I choose this, then I don't get to do this. We're searching for the thing worth it all. I hope this thing brings me to life, to something worthy, to fullness. We're all seekers. We're all shoppers. That's the pearl merchant. But the guy in the first verses, he's not on a search. He's, in Jerry Seinfeld's words, walking around, looking around. He stumbles onto treasure. Now, for context, you need to know this is... People would bury your treasures the way they would hide or, or secure belongings and all that kind of stuff. Land would change hands all the time. Families or people would die. There would be revolutions. So there was just like random places where people who died a long time ago had buried all their treasure. So this was not an uncommon thing. Um, but here's the point of that guy. He wasn't looking around. And the point is simply this. The answer might be right in front of you. And you just can't see it. Isaiah 53 says this about Jesus. This is, it's pretty profound, even though it sounds mundane, but that's kind of why it's profound. Isaiah 53 says, when the servant of God comes, he will have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And you see, like, on the one hand, we like shiny, attractive praised by the world, appealing to the senses, what everyone else is doing. And on the other hand, there is substantial, true, good, and worthy. And those are not necessarily the same thing. And we're attracted to big, shiny, exciting things. That doesn't mean that those are the substantial things. All that is glitter, all that glitters is not gold. You've heard that phrase. But there's also a great line in The Fellowship of the Ring that says all that is gold doesn't glitter. The worthy things may be more mundane than you know. Do you know that you're searching? Do you know that you are cashing in on your life at present? Have you chased the glittering things and have you found them to be gold? Are they worthy of your life? It's your life. It's the most expensive, valuable thing you have. And Jesus is telling us that everything that glitters may not be gold, but he's really telling us all that is gold and all that is worthwhile, all that is worth your life, it may not glitter. And we need to refine how we identify what's, what it is that's worth giving our life to. Before we do that, I want to make one other point, though. The cost of a worthy love. So I want to talk about the search of a worthy love, but secondly, the cost of a worthy love you do pay out all of your life. You can't save it, some of it for later. And what we mostly do, what our tendency is, is to diversify our portfolio. So, maybe a little Jesus religion here. I'm going to put some hope and some energy into that. Put some hope and some energy and some materialism, some hope and some energy in my ambition and achievement, some hope and some energy into associating with these people. A little hope here, a little energy there. And the reason that we say a little bit yes to a lot of different things is we haven't found anything worthwhile to give our whole life yes to. So we give a little love, 
and a little hope and a little energy and a little commitment to so many things because nothing has felt compelling enough to command the attention and affections of our whole lives. And these two characters, when they discovered the worthy treasure, they knew that even though it cost them everything they had, it was worth it. They went and sold all they had to buy the field, to buy the pearl. And for a second, I want, we need to all kind of be honest and admit three things, myself included. First of all, we're jealous of anybody who finds something worthy of giving their all of their life to. We're all jealous of that person. When we meet that person, we're intimidated by them because they are full and directed and they don't care what you're trying to tell them they're missing out on. And we're actually intimidated by them. So we're jealous of those people. We're actually judgmental of those people. Because we then try to tell them, oh, but you're missing out on all of these things. And they're like, you don't understand how much I don't care about what you're talking about because I've found something worthwhile. And we've gotten so insecure, and when we get insecure, we judge everybody. Right? But then thirdly, we're terribly afraid of sacrificing everything the way they have. Of saying, I'm going to make my life about one thing. We're jealous, we're judgmental, and we're really afraid. But here's the key thing. The key ingredient to experience the deepest delight and the deepest joy and the deepest fullness in life, the key ingredient is sacrifice. What we want is we want a joy that doesn't cost us anything, but that doesn't exist because the key to joy is actually sacrifice. The joy... If you're going to love something, the way to unlock and unleash the joy of loving something, there's only one way to unlock or to unleash the joy that is possible in loving something, and it's this. You have to sacrifice for it. This is what I mean. My family, my girls, Elizabeth, they have cost me more financially, more socially, more emotionally, more psychologically, more physically than anything in my life. They completely control my life. I don't make any independent decisions about my time anymore, about what I'm going to do next. All of my rights and all of my freedoms are curbed by their presence in my life. I'm not independent and I'm not autonomous. And they are the best thing that's ever happened to me. This is really true. I didn't know you could get this happy. Last night, we watched Monday Night Football it was the, the Lions and the Packers. Neither team has an Alabama player on them, so I didn't care. Well, the Packers have one. So I had no reason to be watching that game. All of us were sitting on a couch that was entirely too small for our whole family. I didn't want that moment to end. That was fullness. It has cost me everything. It is absolutely worth it. The joy of having something worthy of love is unlocked and unleashed in the giving up of everything else. And we've got to be honest that we're hedging our relationship with Jesus. The reason that we're not happy in Jesus is not because He's not good. It's because we can never enjoy a relationship that we hedge by holding on to a bunch of other little loves and hopes in case that one fails. The two men sell everything they have to get the treasure. And if we're hearing this, we should feel nervous. If we're hearing Jesus on this, because we're beginning to see, following Jesus means He gets into every aspect of my life. 
It means giving to him my career aspiration, my money, my sexuality, my future, my weekend, your school, your choice of spouse, your sadness, your dreams, your time, our autonomy, our independence, our politics. But the joy of love is only actually available in the sacrifices you make for it. Love that costs you nothing will mean nothing to you. And before the last point, I just want to remind again, you may think, man, Christianity, Jesus doesn't mess around. He wants everything. Yes, absolutely, He does. But also know this, something is taking your everything. Something is demanding our lives. You are giving it to something. And possibly the reason that we can't identify that something is because either A, we've never learned to think deeply about what deeper needs we're trying to satisfy with the decisions that we make day in, day out, or B, more likely, we've so diversified our portfolio to so many different loves that we can't really identify a singular thing or two to which we're giving our lives. But your life is being spent. So how... Do we identify a worthy investment? Uh, since we moved here seven years ago, I've loved... I, lo- I love Menlo dads. I want to be a real Menlo dad. <sighs> they have awesome cars. They have so much more Patagonia than me. Um, I love talking to the venture capital and the investment banker guys and hear how they talk. They're so smart how they talk about identifying good investments. We have to ask that question not just of our money. We have to ask it of our life. We should ask Jesus. It's okay to ask. Is he worth it? You should ask of your other loves. Are they worth giving all of your focus and your life and your hopes to? Are they worth it? Now, the question then is this. is How is Jesus distinct from any other love that you can invest your life into? And here's how he is distinct. He's the only one that gives up his everything for you. Hebrews 12 tells us, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was the joy he sought? The joy he sought was you. What did he give up to have you? His everything. Did he love us because we were good or because we were worthy? No. He went to the cross to display that he loves us, that he gives up his life in spite of our failure, with full knowledge of our failure, paying the cost of our failure on our behalf when we're not worthy. What does Stanford do with the unworthy? Doesn't accept them. What does McKinsey Consulting do with the unworthy? Doesn't hire them. What do friends do with people who fail them or don't fit their friend group's personality mold? Exclude them. What does the world do with the unsightly and the ugly? Shame them. What do we do with the morally detestable? We rage at them. What do we do with the awkward? We avoid them. What do we do with the sick? We edge them to the side. What does the world do with the proud? We elect them. What do we do with the power hungry? We feed them. What do we do with the beautiful? We praise them. What do we do with the rich? We fawn over them and want to be like them. But what does the world do with the foolish and the embarrassing and the failures and the outcasts and the eyeballs, the outsiders, the unworthy? 
we don't have time for them. They don't want us, we don't want them around us because they might make us know something about ourselves. And if you haven't experienced it already, but I think we probably all have, the world, which by the way, the world is us, is always asking you to prove your worth and will only reward you if you prove your worth. And when you're found to be unworthy, the world will kick you to the side because no one will give their lives for the unworthy except for Jesus. And he does it because he loves you. He invented love. So he knows the only way to unlock the joy of love is to sacrifice everything he has for the one he loves. That's what he does for you. And he does it even for, and actually especially for, the unworthy. And anytime we try to come to him with a sense of worth, he usually goes to great lengths to say, listen, big shot, I don't love you because you think you're great or worthy or better than others. I need you to come to this mirror and see who you really are, not so that I can shame you. This is what we do in confession every week. But so that you will know that I see the real you and now you see the real you and the real you is the one that I love, not the fake PR you that you deceived yourself and others with. That's good news. That's the news we've always longed for. I've been married for, will be 15 years this January. And I was watching this show on Netflix, Atypical. Have y'all seen this show? It's really good. Let me know if you watch it. But it's this, uh, this teenager who's trying to you know, um, have a relationship. And one of the episodes is about the first I love you. The first time you drop the L-bomb in a romantic relationship. That's a big deal, right? We've been married for 15 years. There's that thrilling first I love you. It's a big deal. And you might think that like, well, that first one is the biggest one. And then there's like law of diminishing returns. It's not true. (laughs) The first I love you is pretty thrilling. But her I love you's now are far sweeter than even that first thrilling one. And this is why. Because now she knows me. Dating's an audition. We use all our best material during dating. You don't really have to know the person you're dating. We only show who we are when we're dating. It's an audition. Now we've lived together for 15 years. She knows me. She's seen me. She's lived with me. She's seen everything gross about me. She's seen my lazy places and my dark places. And now her I love you's are not the words of just an infatuated fiancé. Her I love you's are the words of someone who's seen everything about me and says, I know you and I forgive you and I love you. Her love for me makes me want to give everything for her. And that's a small picture of Jesus' love for us. And when we give him our work, our ambition, our sexuality, our hopes, when we give Him our shame and our guilt and our wounds and our money and our anger, and we give Him our happy things, He doesn't just take them from you. He actually redeems them. Because when those things become our lives, they become our prisons. When Jesus becomes our life, those things are all restored to the places where they were meant to be. And they're not the place now where we use them presently to forge our identity because now you have an identity in Jesus. Instead, they become the places where we actually express and enjoy our freedom and delight to use those things 
to serve others because of the sure love that we have in Jesus. It costs everything. That's the deal. That's what you're signing up for. You get everything and far more in return. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these small pictures. Uh, And they are scary pictures to think about, to engage, to respond to, to see what it looks like in our life. Father God, but I pray that we would see at the cross how much you love us, that you can be trusted, there's life and fullness in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Tell the camera.